Welcome back. As you can see, I still haven't moved. <laughs> I'll be coming to you from this pile of boxes for the next few weeks. But let me tell you something. If I could only choose nine pages for any young and inquiring mind to read, any nine pages in all of these boxes containing 1,300 or so books, I might just have to choose the nine pages we're going to talk about today. These pages are so full of insight that it's tempting to just read the chapter out loud. But I want to make sure that we don't miss what Lewis is doing here and how it connects with contemporary life and contemporary discussions about these things. So, so if, you're, if you recall from last time, Lewis has made the argument that something must exist outside of nature from the existence of man's conscience and before that from the existence of reason. For Lewis, the former is a, in fact a species of the latter, in any case, Lewis ended the last chapter knowing that he was going to clear up a few misgivings and then move on to his main argument uh, in chapter seven, which we'll get to next week. Uh, so this is the misgivings chapter, and next time he'll move on to discussing miracles more directly. Uh, Lewis immediately starts out by saying that his argument thus far is not dependent upon some abstract notion of a soul that is separated from its environment. And he quite explicitly invites us to recognize that, quote, rational thinking can be shown to be conditioned in its exercise by a natural object, the brain. It is temporarily impaired by alcohol or a blow to the head. It wanes as the brain decays and vanishes when the brain ceases to function, end quote. This is absolutely crucial. And he will spell it out a bit further in a moment. But what I want to point out here is that Lewis is dealing with a problem that has become especially important in the last several generations of philosophers. Many think that the implications of neuroscience, which show how states of consciousness are altered by states of the brain, proves that consciousness reduces to the brain or that reasoning reduces to the brain. Um, Lewis, rather, uses the language of conditioning. Reasoning is conditioned by the possibilities latent to a brain at any particular moment. Similarly, writes Lewis, our moral outlook is shaped in particular historical traditions, uh, geographical environments, or economic structures, etc. But similarly, our moral ideas don't necessarily reduce to these things, but they are the sites within which we inherit and work out our morality. They condition, if you will, practical reason in the development of wisdom. So, okay, so far so good. Now let's see what Lewis does with this by, by quoting the following passage at length. So this is Lewis, quote, the rational and moral element in each human mind is a point of force from the supernatural working its way into nature, exploiting at each point those conditions which nature offers repulsed where the conditions are hopeless and impeded where they are unfavorable. A man's rational thinking is just so much of his share in eternal reason as the state of his brain allows to become operative. It represents, so to speak, the, the, the bargain struck or the frontier fixed between reason and nature at, this, at that particular point. A nation's moral outlook is just so much of its share in eternal moral wisdom as its history, economics, etc. lets through. In the same way, the voice of the announcer is just so much of a human voice as the receiving set lets through. Of course, it varies with the state of the receiving set and deteriorates as the set wears out and vanishes altogether. If I throw a brick at it, it is conditioned by the apparatus, but not originated by it. If it were, 
If we knew that there was no human being behind the microphone, we should not attempt, we should not attend to the news. The various and complex conditions under which reason and morality appear are the twists and turns of the frontier between nature and supernature, end quote. Uh, fellas, this is, a, this is a mighty fine paragraph. <laughs> what Lewis is so good about is, in, is incorporating insights from the various disciplines without letting them set the terms of all of reality. Neuroscience and the study of history have everything to do with grasping how reason and morality work out on the ground. And this, says Lewis, is precisely as we should expect it to be. We don't need to be nervous about those disciplines, but this does not at all imply that reason and morality themselves are reducible to the conditions in which they manifest in the world of nature. Now, there are many important contemporary discussions where these few pages are just enormously relevant. What I'm trying to point out is Lewis' brilliance here as a rhetorician. He doesn't just tear down the arguments of his opponents, right, or, or the places that they go to defend themselves. He incorporates those places within his own total picture and makes more sense out of them than his opponents do. He's stealing all of their toys, so to speak, and then he plays with them even better than they do. <laughs> of course reasoning is affected by the brain, and of course our moral deliberations are impacted by family, context, habit, etc., but it's also manifestly the case that this is just the frontier between nature and supernature, where supernature shows up in nature. Uh, and as Lewis goes on to say, you can always look at it from, from one side or the other. When you, when you look at a map, for instance, a, a, border, a bulging border in one country on a map might be just as well described as a dent in another country. But the truth is that both descriptions are apt and neither are complete. Similarly, with the boundaries between reasoning and morality on the one hand, and then nature on the other. I'll say, okay, so th this, this uh, misgiving out of the way, Lewis moves on to another. Uh, and here, my friends, we get into some really, really great stuff. Here's the new misgiving. To some people, Lewis writes, quote, the great trouble about any argument for the supernatural is simply the fact that argument should be needed at all. If so stupendous a thing exists, ought it not to be obvious as the sun in the sky, end quote? So here's the idea. If the supernatural exists, wouldn't we expect it to be super obvious? Doesn't it count against it that we've got to go through all this mental and moral rigmarole to, to arrive at and conclude about the being of the supernatural? Sometimes this is, this is called the problem of divine hiddenness, maybe the, the problem of divine non-obviousness, if you will. Now, Lewis has two replies, and it is worth paying very careful attention to them. I'll, I'll summarize them here for you. First, Lewis argues that we don't see the supernatural implications of reason so obviously, not because such, not, not because such an implication is so far away from us, but because its reality is actually so close to us. We, we see through certain faculties and facts. For, for instance, we see through our eyes and very often use them without thinking about the fact that we're using our eyes and their structure, so to speak. Similarly, writes Lewis, quote, the, the naturalists have been engaged in thinking about nature. They have not attended to the fact that they are thinking. But the moment one attends to this, it is obvious that one's own thinking cannot be merely a natural event, end quote. Similarly, it is, it is the grammar of our own language that is often most difficult for us to formalize precisely because our primal relationship to our own grammar is informal. It's just in our using it. 
And, and so we often learn a lot about our own formal grammar when we start to learn the formal grammar of another language. But just as we, we then, as that shows, we can step back and see the formal structures of our grammar. So we can step back in our own thinking about things and note that we are, after all, thinking as such. And then all that Lewis has argued so far uh, arguably applies and applies quite clearly. But Lewis goes on to make another point that I have not seen repeated in the many, many books I've read on the Christian faith or on culture in general. I think he has some real insight here. Lewis says that our world is a bit abnormal. Even with that, that first point that some things are not obvious because they're too intimate, it's worth noting how historically abnormal our own circumstance is. Lewis is about to tell a bunch of modern persons who tend to reduce morality to historical forces just how historical forces has sh has, have shaped they themselves. <laughs> so Lewis is again worth quoting at length here. He writes, quote, the state of affairs in which ordinary people can discover the supernatural only by abstruse reasoning is only by abstruse reasoning is recent and by historical standards abnormal all over the world until quite modern times the direct insight of the mystics and the reasoning of the philosophers percolated to the mass of the people by authority and tradition they could be received by those who were no great reasoners themselves in the concrete form of myth and ritual and the whole pattern of life. In the, condi uh, in the conditions produced by a century or so of naturalism, plain men are being forced to bear burdens, which plain men were never expected to bear before. We must get the truth for ourselves or go without it." End quote. What's Lewis saying here? <laughs> Especially if you see the surrounding context, it's clear that he's trying to understand the development of modern secularization. People used to believe in the supernatural by default. Now they don't. Now they have to figure all this out for themselves. In a, in a world with thick authority and a strong role for tradition, the beliefs of the common man were heavily influenced by that authority and tradition. That's how the, the, the big ideals filtered down into civilization, as it were. Not only this, but what we have received by default after that is a certain set of mental habits that don't easily grasp the super, supernatural. So on the one hand, we've seen the decline of authority and tradition, and on the other hand, we've seen a sort of truncated set of reality glasses take prominence. And most of those who are experts in this new set of mental habits, as useful as they are on certain things, basically, you know, scientific thought, they've also, during that same period, those experts have been drastically malformed philosophically and theologically. In the mix, we've lost a lot of language and a lot of mental instincts. So where, so where does that leave us? And it, it leaves us in this weird position where common people have to figure out the big things for themselves. But here's where Lewis is just marvelous. On the one hand, this could be read as just one big giant historical mistake. Oh, we made the wrong move. Let's unmake it and get back to when things weren't so complicated and we just had authority and tradition. But another reading is that in the, in the mysteries of divine providence, God intends that the whole mass of humanity move toward possessing and internalizing the insights which have hitherto been reserved only for sages. If so, then the current situation 
could be read as but growing pains for what will be the production of a greater mass of sages, a future that Lewis is trying to help along by writing books like this one, which speaks precisely to common people, mediating the insight of sages to ordinary persons. Lewis, Lewis doesn't speak dogmatically about this. He's just being gestural here. But, but I want to pause here to point this out because as you, as you move in the world of Christian thought, you'll encounter a lot of readings of, you know, kind of the world these days or maybe some pining for the way things used to be. Let's get back to that stuff. And Lewis is great about being realistic with our current challenges, but also at helping us to see things in the, in the big picture and to keep in mind that God is at work in the current order of things in ways that we might not expect. Possibly, modern civilization pressures man into becoming a more conscious and insightful human. And once again, Lewis is making a funky rhetorical move here. Earlier in the chapter, you might say he kind of stole whatever insight there is to be found in neuroscience and in, and in modern discussions of identity, which tries to show how context influences us. And he uses those insights very much against the agenda of their typical wielders. And similarly here, Lewis is entertaining the possibility of a certain kind of civilizational progress, and he is doing so pre precisely against the vision of progressivists who think that the progress of civilization is the eradication of religion. Rather, Lewis counters, maybe it's the eradication of a certain kind of childish relationship to religion and the development of a certain kind of uh, adult relationship to religion. But, argues Lewis, we must move in one of these two directions. The, the, the unhomed juvenile, if you will, the young man that's been, you know, kicked out of the house, can only sustainably build a new home by continuing the traditions of his parents or learning a greater degree of wisdom. Lewis writes, quote, a society where the simple many obey the few seers can live. A society where all were seers could live even more fully but a society where the mass is still simple and the seers are no longer attended to can achieve only superficiality, basedness, ugliness, and in the end, extinction. On or back we must go, to stay here is death, end quote. So we can either defer to the wise or become wise ourselves. We cannot stay unwise, refuse even outsource wisdom, and pretend that all will be okay. I think Lewis is making an argument here that is relevant for so many discussions you will likely encounter, and I'd encourage you to keep this chapter in your mind as you go on to have various dialogues about these things as you, as you grow into adulthood. I think these nine pages will help you tremendously. All right, but uh, so, so Lewis uh, concludes the chapter by summarizing where we're at. He hasn't actually argued for miracles yet. Rather, he's simply once again arguing for the supernatural. The point is that at least here in reason and morality, nature is invaded by supernature. It is the very of nature. It is the very nature of nature, as Lewis puts it, to suffer at least this invasion. Quote, but then, writes Lewis, we, may lighter, we might later find that it was the very nature of nature to suffer miracles in general, unquote. And so the rest of the book will be an argument that nature is indeed unsafe from the invasion of miracles by a more classical definition, that is other instances of the supernatural. So the final question is whether or not God ever pierces nature in more specific ways than through the general and common manner of reason and morality. 
quote, does he, as Lewis puts it, ever introduce her, introduce into her, that is nature, events of which it would be not be true to say, this is simply uh, work, the working out of the general character which he gave to nature as a whole in creating her. Such events are what are properly called miracles, and it will be in this sense only that the word miracle will be used for the rest of the book. So miracles are sort of the supernatural invasion that is not general, but is more specific, if you will. That's how he's going to use miracles for the rest of the book. There's a more commonsensical sense of what we mean when we use the word miracles in modern parlance. Uh, so there you have it. The supernatural is ordinary and everywhere in our experience. That's Lewis' argument is so far. Lewis' argument so far. The question is whether there is an a, a non-ordinary element of the supernatural in reality. It is this, the non-general supernatural puncture, if you will, that will be Lewis' focus for the rest of the book. And so next week, we'll begin to work through Lewis' treatment of miracles proper. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, see you later.